though it's new, or perhaps because it's new, facial recognition technology evokes strong emotions. This technology is a tool, and like any tool, it is in the abstract value neutral. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad. Still, people's strong emotional reactions seem justified. Facial recognition is a powerful tool. It ramps up the good and it ramps up the bad. Public defenders can use facial recognition to exonerate defendants accused of homicide. But Iran's morality police can use it to force women to wear a hijab in public. China is using facial recognition to oppress its Uyghur minority and to impose a social credit system on everyone else. The stakes are high. Whatever we do with facial recognition technology, whatever rules we set around its use, we should proceed thoughtfully and cautiously, keeping a close eye on the costs and benefits of deploying it. One person who is proceeding thoughtfully and cautiously while keeping a close eye on costs and benefits is Professor Jane Banbauer. Jane is the Dorothy H. and Louis Rosenthal Distinguished Professor of Law at the University of Arizona College of Law. She wrote an essay for the Hoover Institution called Facial Recognition as a Less Bad Option, which we'll be discussing today on this, the Tech Policy Podcast, with me, your host, Corbin Barthold. Professor, welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks so much. I'm excited. So let's dive right in. Um, what is facial recognition technology? Very basic. Um, what's its current state of development, more or less? Uh, and what spurred you to write about it? Okay, yeah. So facial recognition technology is basically using a computer program to compare two face images and decide whether it's the same person or not. Uh, so it, what happens, usually the companies that are de developing this, like Clearview AI, for example, they'll get a big database of face pictures of faces that are identified with people's names attached. Um, and from that database, they will construct kind of like the fingerprint of someone's facial architecture. So, um, you know, based on the precise, if, if you're familiar with the difference between like a vector drawing versus uh, sort of a photograph that's pixelated, um, facial recognition winds up kind of converting faces to sort of like a vector drawing so that there are important vectors that when you know enough of them, um, will usually uniquely identify um, the facial structure of somebody. And so then that gives you the map. And if you get another picture of the same person and that picture's not identified, you could still, you know, computers being efficient as they are, they could still run through the basically the like the big library of of um, of of face maps and find the right one, the best matching one, and propose a match. Uh, so it's kind of like what we do with fingerprint analysis, but uh, what I think makes this different is that unlike fingerprints, which at least through norms, we rarely collect just willy-nilly, we are frequently being photographed uh, and with our faces in it. And so it's like leaving your fingerprints everywhere and um, and allowing companies or the police, which I think is what we're mostly going to talk about today, uh, being able to know where we've been. Um, so what got me interested in it, actually, I've been interested in this for a little while, because back in, I, I think it was about 2010 or so, I saw a presentation by Alessandro Acquisti, who is um, a, an economist at Carnegie Mellon, um, talking about facial recognition. At that time, it was not very good yet, but it was clear it was going to get good. Um, so at the time, you know, even with sort of highly constrained um, libraries of faces, the program was still matching at not a great rate. And, you know, it would give maybe a, an array of eight 
images and say, okay, <laughs> I think it's one of these people. And it was right about half the time. And so, you know, per, per image, it's not that great. Um, but still, it was clear it was going to get better. Um, and especially, and also what was clear was that there are a lot more, there's a growing library of pictures of faces on the internet that are attached to names that can provide the, the main matching source for a company like Clearview AI. Um, and Alessandro Akisi um, described this as, you know, really a game changer because it means we no longer have anonymity in our face. And I found that phrase confusing. Like I knew what he meant. You know, we have a sort of practical obscurity most of the time when we walk around in public that even though people look at our faces, they don't, they can't then connect that to some sort of identifier that's persistent. And then so that they know more about us than just that we, that this random person is in this place at this time. Um, but with, and so what he meant was that's that idea of, of kind of relative privacy in public is potentially going to be shattered with facial recognition. Um, and the presumption was that that's bad, but I even back in 2010 was wondering if it's exclusively bad or if it's controllably good while also being you know risky in some contexts. The way that you described the vectors, I thought was really great um, using words to create. I, I get exactly the image when I, if you go online and you search the stuff, you see the images of what a face looks like when it's been processed through it. Um, and you described that very well. I think it's important to be right up front that people see those kinds of images and, and they're deeply uncomfortable. It's just kind of icky to see yourself process down like that. And then people are also uncomfortable with the notion of, you know, as you said, losing face privacy. It, it, the, are we headed toward a minority report, basically? Um, but what I most appreciate about your paper is your willingness when it comes to this technology and that discomfort, which I uh, want to say is, is a legitimate discomfort, but to say compared to what? Compared to what is such a good question that often just doesn't get asked. And you write that much of the political discourse ignores or wishes away the inescapable trilemma between the probability of enforcement, the harshness of punishment, and crime rates. Uh, when we think about, you know, whether using facial recognition technology is a good idea or not. So could you please explain, you know, the grand compared to what and, and this cost benefit yeah. analysis? Yeah. And, and you know, as is probably uh, obvious to the, the audience, this paper, the Hoover paper, was really looking at facial recognition in the context of law enforcement. Um, so there are other questions, I think, related to commercial uses or even government uses that are not related to, to criminal detection. But um, but I wanted to go to this problem because it's used as the kind of example of why we should not want facial recognition. And I see it as actually the example of why we <laughs> probably do want facial recognition. So let me explain. Um, uh, the trilemma that I describe is that we are we are right now in a pretty bad criminal justice equilibrium. We have in here in the US appallingly bad detection and enforcement rates, even of extremely serious crimes. Um, so if we assume that we want crime levels to be driven down, um, and especially for serious, say, violent crimes, um, we have, you know, and we don't expect to change the detection rate, we have only very, very harsh punishment to use to try to deter crime. And that has been, actually, that's been the explicit agenda for the last 50 to 70 years. Um, so, uh, it, you know, there, there was sort of a influential economic literature that said, like, look, okay, it's, it's kind of expensive to figure out who's done a crime. So, like, once you are pretty confident that you found someone who's, like, done a murder, just just, or not, maybe a murder is not a bad example, but even, even a mild, you know, even, even a relatively less serious crime, if, if you find someone and you convict them, we should go ahead and punish them really, really high so that other people will think, well, okay, my chance of being detected is low, but if I do get detected, it's going to be really, really bad. And so my expected costs are going to be high. And so I won't do crime. And that's just not, you know, there's now abundant evidence that that's not actually how humans operate. 
it's not completely foreign to how we operate. We do respond to incentives, but for whatever kind of, you know, cognitive, you know, sort of hard-coded brain reasons, we we respond more to the likelihood of having some sort of um, sanction imposed on us, even, you know, maybe not even jail time, but just like social stigma. We, we respond more to the likelihood of being perceived as a bad person uh, and detected as one than we do to a small chance of a really, really, really terrible punishment. So that's why I think we have this situation where we have pretty, well, we have growing crime levels and decreasing detection levels right now for the last, you know, five years or so, um, and really harsh punishment. And, and so I'm with a lot of criminal law, criminal justice reformers where I think this is terrible. In fact, I don't think anyone on any side of the ideological spectrum likes where we're at right now. But the trouble is that I think there's a little bit of a nirvana fallacy operating where there's an unwillingness to admit that there are these trade-offs between these three legs, you know, crime rates, detection rates, and punishment harshness. Um, and, and so a lot of criminal justice reformers want to reduce punishment and also maximally protect privacy in a way that is sure to get in the way of detection. Um, and so at a high level, facial recognition is just one example of this problem, but I think it's a good example. Facial recognition has a really good chance of increasing our detection rates um, in a way also that doesn't involve as much error as traditional policing. And that might give us a chance to, to decriminalize some things that really probably shouldn't be criminally sanctioned at all, but we're just using it as kind of proxy crimes to get at people who do worse stuff. And then even for even for crimes of violence, I think there's a chance, you know, we're, we're still outliers as a country in terms of how harshly we punish. I think we we could and, and you know, ideally should reduce sentence lengths for a wide range of reasons. You mentioned a few things in there that are bound to turn certain listeners off. So, you know, the one that really jumps out to me is the notion that society would take um, one kind of activity and make it a proxy for crime. And a lot of people are like, that's really terrible. We shouldn't do that. And it's like, yeah, I agree. But the reality, and again, this is sort of the compared to what um, we live in a society. So we use politics to make decisions. So to use another example of what you were talking about, like the Warren court comes to mind where they just said, great, we are E4s and robes. We're going to create all this great criminal procedure. We're going to make society better. And it's like, well, more than one person has a move in the game. So that leads mm -hmm. to three strikes laws mm -hmm. and stiffer <laughs> penalties by other people in the process. So you say something like that. And the answer is not like, well, we'll just not do that. It's like, no, we're a society and there's politics. Um, so your opinion needs to be counterbalanced with other people's opinions and so on. That was kind of a long lead in to just saying that one piece of reality that you deal with that I feel is underappreciated in this conversation is the simple fact that voters aren't very tolerant of spiking crime rates. Mm -mm. Um, That's right. So one thing <laughs> yeah. that I was very surprised about when I was preparing for this is I looked up public attitudes about facial recognition technology, and I was really surprised at the results. There's this big disconnect between sort of elite activist class attitudes, where it's just assumed that facial recognition is super evil and dystopian. And average voter attitudes where even minority groups seem broadly open to at least some use of facial recognition. So um, according to Pew, majorities of all racial groups favor use of facial recognition to monitor protests. That blew wow. my mind. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is no clear consensus even among Black Americans about whether widespread use, that's the exact quote they used, by police of facial recognition would be a good idea for society. Um, all of this totally surprised me, totally did not, uh, just blew apart my, my assumptions. Um, so why do you think that disconnect exists? And is your work trying, like, do you see yourself as kind of trying to bridge that? Is that what this paper is about? A little bit. Um, yeah, it might be a case study into that gap. Uh, and but, you know, I'll, I'll say it surprises me that that majorities of all races 
don't mind facial recognition for protests because protests are, well, they're, they're not, you know, they're a, a sign of civic engagement and progress. And so that does surprise me, but it does not surprise me that people generally prefer the use of facial recognition for policing purposes more generally. Uh, the same, the same disconnect between elite circles and the general public exists in terms of policing as well, just su support for the funding of policing and the presence of larger numbers of, of, of um, you know, police forces um, or police officers, I should say. And I, I, I think the, what, what explains the gap to some extent, I mean, I don't know, I might tap into something like the luxury belief theory that, you know, if you're immune from living in high crime neighborhoods and uh, then then you're likely to discount the psychological stress not 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 only the costs when crime happens but the psychological stress of worrying about crime at, at your front door um that uh, you know I, I think maybe one reason I, I don't know what explains my willingness to sort of pierce through this gap but but it could be that I I come from like a mixed class family where I did see um, I did see the effects of crime and even having criminals in the family and how that actually really negatively affects the whole family and and so I think part of it is that I was not quite as sheltered from the effects of crime and so even though I've you know been I have very elite uh, education at this point and can now afford my way out of um, high crime neighborhoods very easily, of course. Um, I'm in touch, I guess, with that, with that mentality. And so, so yeah, so it doesn't totally surprise me. Getting I, can Professor I also... Jane Bainabauer on the psychologist's couch here on the technology podcast. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to go there, but, um, you know, and I also, I also think that I don't know if this is leading people to have this kind of um, willingness to embrace facial recognition, but from my perspective, I, I, I think facial recognition is actually better than the impulse to flood the streets with police officers, uh, because um, even though having a lot of police officers does also deter crime to some extent, it doesn't do it in as targeted a way. Um, so, so, so my, you know, m the the form of law enforcement use that I defend the most in this piece is the sort where we have, the police have access to an image that comes from a crime scene. And so there, this is not the case where the police are just randomly collecting lots of data about who went where and when in case it's useful later, right? That, that's how they use, that's how police frequently use um, license plate readers just to sort of construct a big database in case it's useful later. There might be some good reasons to do that as well, but but what's interesting about facial recognition and the way and and like the sort of market for services like Clearview is that instead it starts with a police uh, the a police investigator having access to a photo from a crime scene and asking the service to identify that perpetrator, uh, and so it means that the government is actually relinquishing a lot of discretion over how the investigation proceeds. And if you add on top of that, what I think is going to be, you know, what, what probably is already pretty high quality matching and what over time is going to be even better matching, but, you know, better accuracy. I think we this might be the sort of example of like a Pareto optimal shift where there are fewer innocent people who are, who are, who have to deal with the suspicion of police um, and there's more detection of crime. You know, we don't get that very often. It's really only technology advances that that usually give us that option. And this is one. Um, there is this television show. I actually don't even know if it's still on. Um, it's called The First 48. And I encourage anybody who's interested to look up Tom Segura, the comedian. He has a just glorious bit on how crazy this show is. But it's called The First 48 because it, it follows homicide detectives in the first 48 hours after a, a murder and their investigation. I think the premise is that if you don't have a solid lead within 48 hours, you're unlikely to solve the murder. And it is just 
mind-blowing this show my <laughs> wife and i back when we didn't have kids and had time to watch such things would just watch it and like our jaws would drop because um you know it's some detective in miami and he decides that it was probably you know they all have, they all have gang nicknames the people it's like the, i think it's snake and they're getting evidence coming in that shows it eh, maybe it probably wasn't snake me snake wasn't there and and he'll the detective looks at the evidence he goes no 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 i think it was snake and like <laughs> puts the evidence aside and like keeps following the lead on his like his hunch it's terrifying actually mm -hmm. um the way that once they sort of set their their mind in a certain direction they keep following i'm sure there are a lot yeah. of great detectives out of there i i don't this is not meant to be a thing against all detectives but the first 48 right. every now and then you'll see this episode that's just very scary in that way right and so just a final point on compared to what i'm not sure the people who are dead certain that facial recognition is bad uh, they just seem a bit naive about how detectives and the police work in real life. Um, so, you know, yeah. you say to take it out of just TV, um, that facial recognition outperforms the accuracy of eyewitnesses, of probable cause-based warrant sketches. Um, you know, my anecdote aside, could you elaborate on that? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so we allow. I mean, you know, our fourth, our basic Fourth Amendment principles is that we do allow police to violate people's privacy when they have enough basis for believing for for suspicion for believing that this person, okay, might be might be a good suspect, might have done it. Um, and and actually, <laughs> and and by the way, when we decide that there is probable cause, what we let the police do is like maybe ransack a house, bring a person in for, you know, literally arrest a person and bring them in for questioning. It's also, you know, what you get when you've reached this level of, of, of suspicion is also a very significant invasion into the life, not just the, you know, not just the privacy, but the life um, of, of the, of the person who's a suspect with facial recognition. Um, the, unless we're going to treat a highly technical, you know, unless we want to claim that there's a highly technical violation of everyone whose image is in the comparison database and that's just automatically scanned, like nobody's actually looking at these photos, but it's just a computer kind of going through them to, to try to match the face map. And unless we count that as like a serious enough privacy risk, um, the police are not even going to intervene until um, until they have a lead that's quite credible from, from the facial recognition service. And, and yeah, as, as you said, I, I looked at, you know, so, so, so one common theme of, of the arguments against facial recognition is that it can be wrong. And by the way, some of the error can be biased and we'll come back to that, I, I assume, but, um, but there can be error and that's true. But there can be error with everything. I mean, in fact, in fact, the system assumes there is a lot of error anytime a police officer has reasonable suspicion or probable cause. Um, and so, so if we actually kind of look at the statistics, um, if I'm, I, I hope I'm remembering this right. I think that a probable cause based warrant for a home search uh, leads to you know, leads to enough evidence to 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 eventually um, to eventually lead to an arrest. Something like forty to fifty percent of the time, um, a drug sniffing dog does a little bit better, actually, and um, and facial recognition does better still. Um, or at least you know, if if there's a single if there's a single um, if there's a single target that's identified. And all of that, and, and you know, and this makes some sense because what police use when they go to get their warrant is they use things like informants who say that it was snake, right? <laughs> and um, and actually, we're still unlike the facial recognition system, the police can ignore exculpating information that they may receive either because they do it intentionally because they're just so convinced it's snake and they don't want to mess this their warrant application up 
Or, I mean, more likely, you know, it's just because they they discount their sort of confirmation bias. They discount some of the exculpating evidence. They overweight some of the stuff that suggests it's snake. And so, um, so it's not surprising that the information that goes into even a probable cause-based warrant is actually less likely to lead to accurate results than, than facial recognition. Well, let's turn to concerns. I mean, one thing that does concern me about facial recognition tech is, um, you know, you talk about error rates. And I think there is a little bit of a tendency uh, to say, oh, well, it's technology, so it's great. You know, uh, mm -hmm. it'll it'll work. I mean, DNA uh, testing, if it's done correctly, is very, very accurate. But um, it's hard to assess once you get into the real world and lab technicians and all that and, and how you come out. Um, I actually had Professor Rebecca Wexler on the show mm -hmm. um, a, a while back. I, she, I don't know. <laughs> she can't speak for herself here. Maybe she'd be appalled at our conversation, but she took me through uh, the history of just how many times in the criminal justice system there's been this strong conviction that this or that new technology was really accurate and really awesome, and it just kind of didn't turn out that way over the long term. Everything from you know blood stain analysis to even like fingerprints. Um, mm -hmm. So I I try to come in as we look at facial recognition tech with that kind of wariness, mm -hmm. and with that in mind, I think the the biggest, certainly the most immediate concern of like right now in the short term, um, putting aside you know slippery slopes towards dystopia. What what's going on right now that we should be worried about? It's clearly bias. Uh, there is evidence that facial recognition tech is biased based on gender or skin color. Uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology uh, made findings to that effect in 2019. Uh, the ACLU certainly claims that. Uh, they they seem to have very strong convictions about it. Um, and so I want to take that seriously. I also want to note, though, that, and you're going to have to educate me here. So apparently the NIST, which is a government agency, more recently has confirmed mm -hmm. that the tech has yeah. gotten better. And there does seem to be, uh, uh, I'm not claiming bad faith here, but but uh, an incentive, let's put it that way, for activists to kind of keep banging their pan on about possibly obsolete data. Um, so where are we at with that? I mean, how much of a concern does it remain today? Yeah, so, right, I was going to bring up the NIST study because it's, more recent and and maybe also kind of better methodology. Um, and so I think, and, and, you know, even just sort of theoretically, we would expect if, if we care about reducing error, not only biased error, but error in general, we should expect that the technology over time will be improved so that it does reduce error. And that looks like it looks like that's precisely what's happening. I am still concerned about bias. I mean, you know, one study, I, I would say, you know, we, sh we should maintain our concerns and our sense of caution um, throughout this period. We, we are in the experimental phase of this technology, in my opinion. And I don't think we should have strong convictions about, you know, how we should use it or how 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 good it is for until until it's been in use much longer and has been studied more thoroughly. But I still think that even the bias claim seems to be detached from the compared to what analysis. That's always very important. And so there too, I, you know, all you know, all racial bias, especially you know, racial and gender bias that tends to exacerbate um, historical patterns of discrimination is bad and should be weeded out. It is easier to do that with facial recognition than it is with eyewitness and informant and like all the traditional means of developing suspicion. Um, and so, so the compared to what question, even with the high priority, even with a even with a top priority being to to root out uh, um, racial bias, uh, facial recognition still might outperform the alternatives for detecting crime. The other thing, though, that I find um, 
that I find, uh, I, I don't know what, the, I guess, interesting <laughs> is that the organizations that are most worried about bias, like the ACLU, are also the ones that have strong convictions for privacy in almost every form, especially for minority communities. But these two things are in a little bit of tension. Like it's it's um, a lot of times, and facial recognition is one of these times. A lot of times when there's a um, when there's a when there's biased error that need not be in the system, it's because the training data didn't had insufficient representation of the minority population. Um, and therefore, when that happens, when that's the source of the bias, one of the best ways to reduce it, and in fact, I think this is probably why, why it's been reduced so much recently, is to use a lot more data on the faces of African-Americans and on the faces of women as training data. Um, and so there is some, this is like raises another high level theme for me and <laughs> my work, that there is some tension, at least some of the time, between strong privacy claims where the claim is that we don't want people's data to ever be included, especially without their consent, into any database, basically, and claims that what we also want to do is, is reduce or completely el eliminate bias. Uh, this is a known problem. Like, for example, with medical research, um, because HIPAA privacy rules, for example, don't even allow data to be considered de-identified if it has information about, say, Native American, um, uh, uh, tr you know, tribal status. Because of that, it means that there's a lot less research on the sorts of health problems that affect minority groups, particularly, you know, or, or where, where the treatments uh, have a different efficacy or a different risk profile for minority groups. This is a known problem in health and it generalizes. This is going to be a problem. The more we use data in policing and every other, you know, part of um, part of life today, um, we're going to have to deal with this, you know, trade-off or, or tension between the privacy of building, privacy related to building a training database and the bias and error that we're concerned about with, with the use of the, of the algorithm. So there's a concern as we just covered that it's not as good as we might hope. I also am kind of concerned about the possibility, as I mentioned kind of at the outset, that it's, it's too good. Um, there's the old saw that um, a conservative is a person who has been mugged and a, a liberal is a person who's been arrested. Um, and we could go through for an entire hour just on sort of abusive behavior by the police and the notion that um, although uh, police officers, I'm sure, are great people as a species, like there's just horrifying tales of um, Joe Cop doing things that are an abuse of power. And so, I mean, what do we do about the fact that if if you don't trust the police because you look at past patterns of behavior, you know, it, there's just mm -hmm. a concern about actually potentially giving them the tools to be too good at their job because uh, if you have bad actors, that allows them to be, you know, worse bad actors. Yeah, okay, great, yeah. I am, I, I think here on this point, my convictions are on an opposite direction. So I'm going <laughs> to run through them both, uh, both directions. Okay, so, so the defense of using facial recognition, even though I concede that police forces tend to recruit from a pool of people who are interested in power and, to, and they have a, you know, like, um, you know, even assuming that there's some pathologies in current police forces. Can I just I stop still... you? I, the, the 2 a.m. commercial, this always makes me uncomfortable when it's like 2 a.m. and it's the like community access channel. And it's this, it, there will be these commercials that are like, are you, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but like, are you down on your luck? Are you looking for direction? Join the sheriff's office. Oh my gosh. I've not seen like, that, but that's exactly, I mean, make yes, you feel important. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's okay. So, so I, I, 
So, so here's the argument that facial recognition actually reduces rather than increases police power of the sort that we're concerned about. The argument is when the police get to go to informants or, you know, drive around the street looking for hoodlums, that's when they have maximal discretion in the in how a case proceeds and who they can target. When the police go to Clearview with an image, they lose they lose control. I mean, for, for, for which actually is why I, I think, especially for the sorts of investigations that start with a specific crime and have an image of a face and then work from that direction, I, I actually think um, that facial recognition should maybe even be the first thing that police do because if you receive information about who it might be, then the police have to rationalize in their own mind and explain to a court why they nevertheless ignored that information and went after Snake, right? I'm so glad you mentioned Snake because now it's terrible for everything. Um, and so, so facial recognition reduces discretion because it is a it it it, it stays crime driven rather than suspect driven, um, or at least that's the kind of way I parse out these different styles of, of investigation. Um, also, and this relates to the last question about like, maybe is facial recognition not going to be as good as we think, just like bite mark analysis and blood splatter analysis. Um, I, and I, you know, and I have to admit, it, I'm probably, I'm probably one of those, you know, techno optimists, and I probably suffer from that kind of optimism and bias where I'm excited about what a technology might be able to do. And so I see it a little too readily. That said, though, facial recognition is a little different from the pseudoscientific like bite mark analysis and stuff in the following sense that even once a name has been identified, we still have the original picture of the of the um, of the perpetrator. And um, and we have the location, you know, the picture comes from somewhere. So we have like the location and time of of, of the um, usually at least if it's like you know, from security camera footage, we have the location and time of the crime as well. And so unlike fingerprint analysis, where um, it's not clear, you know, where it's a little harder for a person who's falsely accused to muster an alibi, here, if the person accused just doesn't look like the person in the picture, they're going to be excludable um, a, lot e a lot easier. Um, so that's so that's that's you know so so, so that, that those are the advantages. Okay, so now let me go to though the reasons that I still nevertheless am concerned, and for the reasons that you are too. Uh, we we discussed how you know in the aftermath of the Warren Court, there was just a proliferation of crime criminal statute drafting, right? So our criminal codes got really thick in part, maybe not exclusively because of, but at least in part because of um, the sense, right or not, that um, that detection was getting harder. And so we need to just crack down on smaller, you know, less serious crimes. And, um, and given that we now are in a state where we have tons of crim crimes on the books, I do worry that it means that a police officer could use, you know, maybe not necessarily facial recognition, but could use technology to, with high accuracy, pin a crime on somebody. Give um, me the person and I'll give you the crime. Right. So the, enough infractions. The yeah. Three crimes a day problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, and and so, so, so for that reason, I don't embrace facial recognition or any emerging technology, just, you know, whole, you know, on whole and, and without any restrictions. Um, but, but, but actually, I think that if, if we start with this principle of like, okay, if, if you're not selecting the suspect, and you're instead starting with the crime, I have a lot less fear of the sort that you're describing. Um, and then also, if we add to that a restriction on its use to only certain serious felonies, then I'm even less concerned. Um, and so that might I, be a way. Yeah, go can ahead. I push back right there because yeah. that sounds fine and dandy in principle. But uh, mm -hmm. my concern is that's not how government power works. 
and I the where my head goes is the war on terror, and you know the the, the NSA. So um, the NSA uses FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, to engage mm-hmm. in extensive dragnet surveillance. Now you are not um, a proponent of dragnet use of facial recognition. Um, but people like you and me who are thinking carefully about this and go, oh, you know, it's a good idea to use it for, it's crime-based, this is great. And Mm -hmm. government in many ways is a black box and it's hard to monitor. And the next thing you know, um, you've got your foot in the door. You know, there's a slippery slope issue here. This is my, as I mentioned way earlier, this is my slippery slope to dystopia fear where um, once it becomes normalized for the government to use it, you go step by step from the government using it on like crime or suspect uh, crime based basis to this dragnet basis. And then, you know, the people let's give um, let's give a shout out to the ACLU here, you know, challenging this kind of surveillance have a heck of a time because who has standing um, to challenge something that's done on like a society wide basis, which, you know, you mentioned we shouldn't be too worried about that because there's certain Supreme Court cases that, you know, poo-poo dragnet surveillance as a Fourth Amendment violation. But, I, you know, I would raise and wave around these decisions that create standing problems and say there is a fear in my mind that this would get entrenched in government practices in a way that we could not extract. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Well, terrorism is a hard case because there, even the Fourth Amendment does very little to constrain. But um, but the situation that we have, at least with facial recognition right now, is, is that we have legislatures tripping over themselves to ban its use. So if the legislature is already willing to completely eliminate the use for law enforcement, at least, it seems to me that it could instead modify its approach so that it permits the sorts of uses that help reduce crime rates, help help these communities that we were talking about that are actually suffering from the burdens of a, of a, of a crime spike right now. And by the way, I know in historical terms, the crime spike we have right now is not as bad as what we saw in the late 80s. That's all true, but we are so, I mean, it's kind of like, <laughs> I think of us as conditioned to only allow things to get better. And so like if an amusement park started killing people and they were like, yeah, but in the 1900s, amusement parks were really dangerous. We'd all say, no, 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 you can't, you can't kill anyone with your rights. So I think something happening. It's the Hamlet line, the the hand of little employment hath the daintier sense. You know, once you get more comfortable, you get used to that comfort. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, you're not willing to regress. Um, Yeah, so um. So anyway, so 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 given that the legislature is already involved, it seems I, I you know I I think it's relevant to ask, well, why don't they ban with certain exceptions where it would be particularly useful for the for for the, their community communities to get a handle on crime? But but actually, that's not even my favorite solution. So um, I I do think that here. We need something. We need something to shift with Fourth Amendment theory. Uh, and so I'm working. You know, I'm working on a new draft right now. Maybe you'll have me on your show again in like a year. But I'm. I, I think the slippery slope that you're talking about is not really with technology and access to data, or at least we don't have to conceive of it that way. We could conceive of it as a slippery slope in terms of the substance of the law and what what we're willing to recognize as crimes in the first place. Uh, and I wish, I, I wish instead of going down this, you know, instead of putting all our chips on privacy as the main way to protect ourselves from government overreach in terms of being able to use force and throw people in jail, I wish we had a better balance between privacy and then the actual substance of the law and asking, you know, is it appropriate to even have criminal liability at all for the thing that the legislature is now making a crime. So the, fa- the famous Fourth Amendment case, just to be more specific, that I would want to reverse is, is the case of Atwater, where a woman was driving her children and didn't couldn't, couldn't, or in any case, didn't buckle them for a short drive. 
And the police pulled her over and arrested her. And so, like, the children had to, like, you know, be taken, escorted by the police uh, to the station and someone in the family had to, you know, so. And so the, the question was whether there was sufficient basis to to arrest someone for some for a violation that small. I mean, we could debate about whether it's small and given the risk to children and whatnot. But 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 what's important is that the court said the Fourth Amendment doesn't care if the legislature says it's a crime, it's a crime. And then once they have probable cause that a crime is committed, you can you can be you can be arrested. And that's that's where I wish we had a better stopgap. Um, that's what I think also, not only in terms of law, but even culturally separates the U.S. from places like China anyways. Like in some sense, I'm not as worried as you because at least right now, I see almost no tolerance for the sort of intervention that is commonplace in China. I mean, CEG, COVID and trying to require masks and vaccines and stuff. Um, so, so that's, you know, I guess that's, uh, okay, maybe, maybe if I can make one quick analogy, uh, the slippery slope argument, I, I mean, to, to give a sense of like, where I see government power as being really threatening. One could say, gosh, we shouldn't let the government have an army or have weapons because then they can use those to control us. And that's true, but we need it for too much other stuff. And so, and so that's, I think we always still have to be asking, well, you know, is it better to completely eliminate access to this tool or should we be using it, but within either constitutional or norm-based constraints? So, yeah. And one, going back to a sort of keeping your head grounded in reality, um, I've heard it said, I think I'm, I think I'm channeling Frank Easterbrook here of um, slippery slopes sound scary because you're not living in the society at the bottom of the slope and things change and it goes step by step. And by the time you're at the quote unquote bottom of the slope, you're dealing with people who have different attitudes. Uh, that actually connects mm -hmm. to your thing of like roller coasters, killing people, like people change. So, um, Interesting. I sh shameless plug. Maybe this is on my mind. I, I have an article coming up this uh, it's in this quarter's city journal on should we be concerned about a social credit system developing in America? So, uh, oh, good. Well, so what do you think... say? What do you say? Uh, well, my ultimate, I mean, so there's some people they're mainly on the right who completely are, um, their rhetoric's completely overblown. You know, we're headed towards digital totalitarianism. And I take the concern seriously and investigate. But at the end of the day, at least in a society that is not already so centralized as um, the Chinese with the Chinese Communist Party, um, technology and the Internet on balance, my conclusion, is really more of a decentralizing force. Your thing about um, people freaking out about masks is kind of a good microcosm there where mm -hmm. um, I had Martin Gurry on the show. Great. I mean, he wrote a book called oh, uh, yeah. The Vault of the Public. That it, it, changed. I mean, that affected my life. Like <laughs> that book was an intervention that you can see on the timeline of my life, you know, and my my like sort of intellectual development, I would say. That oh, book that is book just is, fantastic. That book is so amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, and basically just talking about the fact that ultimately technology... Um, it's decentralizing our societal narratives even, um, which creates an unwillingness to allow that digital control. Um, so at the end of the day, mm -hmm. I go with a qualified, uh, no, we're not headed there. Um, but th thank you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I want to quickly, and I apologize because we're you know, sort of heading towards the end. And this is, I guess, going to be like that thing that um, is terrible in debates where they just say, like, raise your hand. Um, <laughs> but uh, you argue that the perils that I'm quoting you perils that flow from facial recognition can be mitigated through sensible limits without banning the technology. And I read that and I was like, well, I mean, Ted Lieu would say the exact, like he he could attest to that exact sentence. And now, uh, Rep Representative Ted Lieu, you talked about people introducing legislation. Um, he's introduced the Facial Recognition Act, um, along with a few other representatives. And um, it seeks to limit uh, facial recognition technology use by law enforcement. Um, the sense I get is that his idea of sensible limits don't 
quite match yours, but I was curious if we could just run through some of the requirements and, and see where you're at. Because okay, this is fun. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> uh, his bill, and I apologize if I get anything about his bill wrong. I may be slightly oversimplifying some points, but in broad outline, this is what his bill does. Uh, warrant requirement for use of facial recognition technology. I believe in all cases mm -hmm. his, would be his bill. So I find this very fascinating. I am fine with that as long as it can be just a, a you know, low effort, you know, telephonic warrant. I mean, so so there should not be, um, like if, if you have a, an image that's high enough quality to do facial recognition, there's not much left to decide. So I don't, so I find the warrant requirement to be a little bit of a distraction because if we have it, it shouldn't just be this big hurdle that makes everything slow down just for the sake of slowing everything down. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, there's not much to distinguish one case from another in terms of its use. And so I'm fine with the warrant requirement in terms of basically being a paper trail. That seems useful. But if we're talking about a warrant requirement where we expect a judge to be like, hmm, huh, you know, that that there's just not enough factors, at least that I'm aware of, that could differentiate good probable cause from from bad. So, okay. so complex answer. <laughs> I believe that we've heard your answer earlier in the episode. So yeah. limit use to serious crimes. Now, obviously, the, yeah. the serious serious is doing a lot of work there, but it mm -hmm. sounds like you're on board with that. I am. Um, no dragnet use. I got that pretty clearly from your paper uh, that you guys are in agreement. Um, his bill has it that it it cannot be the sole basis for an arrest. I think that's a good one. But I also just don't think this is so <laughs> I think this is another non problem. So I'm fine with it being in the bill because I think it just helps clarify to people what the process normally is. But it's almost never the case that that's how facial recognition is going to be used anyways. Um, I mean, so, so for example, at the very least, you have now a police officer who, based on an identity, goes to the person and before putting them in cuffs, looks at their face. So that's already one additional piece of information, right? <laughs> um, but But there are others as well that I think as a practical matter, police forces... Uh, use before just, you know, driving straight to, I mean, for, for example, whether the person lives even in the jurisdiction where it would make any sense that they could have committed the crime, that there's so many other factors that do already wind up affecting arrest, I suspect, as a matter of practice, that um, that it's good to have it as a requirement, but it's probably not really necessary. Well, I think we're actually already most of the way there then, because the, the okay. only remaining ones I dragged out were um, that its use must be disclosed to a defendant, which I wasn't quite clear. Like, how is that not different from just Brady disclosures? Yeah, I don't uh, know either. Yeah, Maybe he means somewhere earlier. I have to admit, like, oh. it, it, there's been different versions of the bill and, and I haven't read it in full detail. So but in broad outline, I'm I'm not clear what that adds. Actually, actually, maybe it does add something because Brady requires provision of evidence that might be exculpating but if i'm remembering ah. that right so this would not be exculpating but if they wanted to hide that they have they commonly use this technology they could do a you know what do they call it a um parallel track a parallel trail yeah, uh, yeah. so showing my so ignorance of, uh, uh, showing my ignorance of criminal procedure there you go yeah. um and then this one, I think, so they want to ensure that the the technology is tested and accurate, which in broad principle, I don't think anybody can have any problem with. I think the question is just um, to what degree do you want the federal government setting the standards or not, which would we, you know, we'd have to dig into the details. Yeah, and we have a good analogy for that because for um, for use of dog sniffs as a basis for probable cause, um, the dogs have to be trained, um, but there isn't. So at least Supreme Court president so far has not insisted on a really highly specific standard. I'd be fine statutorily with having a better standard than just like you got to do whatever the whatever the custom is in terms of training. You know, I think I think it makes sense to specify a little bit more. 
But at the very least, presumably the, um, you know, acting on a facial recognition match plus whatever other evidence needs to at least get the, the police to probable cause. And it could, I guess I'm a little less worried than, um, than Lou is because I think a defendant could always challenge, like if there isn't a front end requirement, then the, then the defendant could challenge it anyways as lacking yeah. sufficient probable cause. So, yeah. Uh, well, uh, my last question for you, um, it certainly seems to me like Illinois biometric information privacy act, uh, the notorious BIPA, um, has the potential to stop the deployment of facial recognition technology sort of dead in its tracks. Um, and I know you have thoughts on the ACLU's lawsuit against Clearview AI. Um, so I'd yeah. be interested to hear them. Yeah, so that Illinois statute requires any company or person, you know, entity that's using biometric identifiers to first get consent outside a few narrow exceptions that don't apply here. Um, and faith, although it's not obvious that they should count, the, the Illinois courts have decided that face maps um, that can be used for facial purposes, of, for the purposes of facial recognition, count as a biometric identifier. I know it sounds weird that I'm even questioning why that would be, but 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 the reason it's odd is that the original purpose of the act was to protect biometric identifiers that are used to like unlock your cell phone or to use to authenticate yourself at a bank. And so this is a little bit of a stretch because nobody's using a face map to authenticate, right? That would be like the worst system of authentication because all you would need is a picture of someone. Um, and so in fact, the technology has, you know, that, that like your phone probably uses to unlock, if, you're, if you unlock your phone with your face, it probably uses something called liveness detection so that it makes sure that it's not just a picture of your face, that sort of thing. So so nevertheless, though, this this bill, this this law has been interpreted to basically cut down on facial recognition mapping. You have to get consent, which effectively means you can't do it if you're the police. Um, ACLU brought a lawsuit. I, I submitted an amicus brief um, along with Duke's First Amendment Clinic and Eugene Volick arguing that, that the Illinois BIPA actually violates First Amendment um, protections because I'm thinking here not only about the use by law enforcement, and in fact, actually law enforcement can definitely be constrained by by law. It's it's actually that I'm I'm concerned that this um, that this law is going to get in the way of using facial recognition for consumer purposes that are not really inherently automatically dangerous. Um, the ACLU obviously disagreed, but what's so strange about this is they wound up settling, and the terms of settlement was that. Um, Clearview AI agreed that they would only allow police to use it. So it's kind of the exact opposite of the way that our constitutional rights are usually supposed to be structured. So, um, so I think this shows there's a shift in, you know, it's a very non-ACLU case in a way, because I think ACLU is on, you know, the side that doesn't make sense to me in terms of the First Amendment. And they're also allowing, you know, through the settlement, they, they've allowed a path for, for government use. So there you go. <laughs> well, uh, Jane, this has been an absolute blast. Thank you for coming on and grappling with these issues as I sort of come at you from one direction and then from another. Um, you're welcome back on anytime. If you care to preview, you have done a little bit so already on the episode, but preview what you're working on or what's on your mind or what we can expect from you in the near future, uh, that'd be fantastic. All right. Yeah, well, I am working on a, a paper that sort of generalizes from this particular report on what I'm calling them filtered dragnets. So you mentioned, and you're right, that I'm against dragnets, but you can think of facial recognition as one example of, of something that's dragnet-like, but it's highly filtered out so that there's lack of um, discretion and control. And so that's what, that's what my next paper is about. All right. Well, uh, this has been the Tech Policy Podcast. I've been joined by Professor Jane Banbauer. I am Corbin Barthold. Um, if you enjoy the show, please give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. Um, it does us a lot of good.
And if you really, really like the show and you like conversations like this one, head over to our website, Tech Freedom, uh, check out what we do. And you're always free to click on that donate button as well. All right. Thank you all. While you guys go do that, I will get ready for the next episode. Next time. Cheers. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.